Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, heat waves in the future could come with their own names. And we might be able to keep safe from them thanks to advances in smart window technology. Plus, Europe's largest ever land dinosaur has just been discovered. And why Wendy's is temporarily retiring their vanilla Frosties. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Summer is kicking off in the Northern Hemisphere, and with it, increasingly deadly heat waves. Now, I didn't know this, but according to both a 10-year and 30-year average from the National Weather Service in the U.S., heat waves kill more people than floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, or any other weather emergency. And yet, there is typically very little advanced warning or media coverage of heat waves, at least as compared to what you see before a tornado or hurricane. And you don't often hear about states of emergency being declared and federal funding pouring in to help an area recover from a heat wave. Although I think the one that hit the Pacific Northwest last year would be a significant exception. But generally speaking, despite actually being more deadly, heat waves do not get the same hype as other extreme weather events. And some say that might be part of why they're more deadly. Newsreels showing flooded streets and destroyed homes stick with people. They visually illustrate the danger of floods and storms. But it's harder to show the effects of a heat wave. It's easier for people to underestimate the risks of a heat wave. So a handful of cities in Spain and the U.S. are starting to name and categorize heat waves the same way that we do hurricanes. They hope that the categorization, from 1 to 3, will provide an objective rubric that cities can follow in order to implement mitigation procedures like opening cooling stations and public pools. Meanwhile, the naming scheme will drum up attention and help both the public and officials understand the significance and the dangers. The category system will be different in each location, quoting Axios. Each city's system will be tailored to its particular climate. A Category 3 heat wave in LA, for example, will look and feel quite different from the same designation in Milwaukee. And some of the places least accustomed to heat are the most at risk, says Kathy Bauman-McLeod, director of the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center, known colloquially as Arst Rock, which is spearheading efforts to name and categorize heat waves. And under the warning system starting up in the six global cities, Category 1 is the least severe, while Category 3 would be the top 10% of terrible heat waves, says Larry Kalkstein, Arst Rock's chief heat science advisor. 
For all three of them, we'd recommend to stay indoors in air conditioning as much as possible, he tells Axios. Each participating city has a different set of formulas that will determine what the categories look like based in part on their urban structure, Kalkstein said. For example, Philadelphia has lots of brick row homes with black tar roofs that trap heat. Any of the designations would ideally prompt city pools to open, outdoor sports to be curtailed, emergency heat lines to be activated, and workers to go door-to-door checking on the elderly and at risk. End quote. While Arstrock has been encouraging the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as the World Meteorological Organization, to implement and standardize the practice of naming and ranking heat waves, NOAA is so far just sticking to early warning systems, not naming. That could change, however, especially as heat waves unfortunately get worse and worse as the years go on. And relatedly, if you are looking to beat the heat while also attempting to cut down on the environmental impact of your air conditioner, you might want to look into smart windows. Now, smart blinds are a thing that I've been into for a while, especially the kind that you can program to automatically close when the sun is at its peak to reduce the heat coming into your home. These exist in varying levels of technology and luxury. You can get basic smart roller shades from Ikea for 150 bucks. Some higher-end types that I've been drooling over are closer to $700 per set. But maybe I won't even need smart blinds one day if smart windows actually take off. Smart windows have actually been around since the 80s, back before we started calling everything in the Internet of Things smart. One of the original creators of the technology behind smart windows, Klaus Gorin Granquist, called his responsive windows smart windows on a grant application in the early 80s, and the name just stuck. But despite the technology having been there in one way or another since then, and the first smart window being invented in 1984, they've yet to see a wide rollout, mostly due to the cost. So maybe my $700 smart blinds would still end up being cheaper anyways. But backing up a little, what are smart windows and why do we need them? Well, according to the Department of Energy, 39% of energy consumption in the U.S. is eaten up by buildings, and 35% of that comes from heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Smart windows can reduce the need to run heating and air conditioning as much, while also reducing the significant amount of energy lost through building windows. And they do this by using materials that block specific wavelengths of light. So when it's hot out, the windows block light, and when it's cool out, they let more in to heat the space. There are two main types of smart windows, electrochromic and thermochromic. Electrochromic materials are what the original windows that Granquist and his team developed were made out of. Quoting Knowable Magazine, Electrochromic windows typically feature five layers overall, including two layers that serve as electrodes, like the positive and negative poles of a battery, and an inner electrolyte layer that contains ions. When voltage is applied, positively charged ions are driven into one layer, while electrons move into the other. The reaction creates a tint that blocks some visible light, as well as the heat-packed infrared light. The tint remains until another round of voltage triggers a reverse reaction that extracts the electrons and ions, thus turning the window transparent once again. End quote. Granquist compares it to an electrical battery, which needs a little energy to charge, but then can keep going and going and going. The downside to electrochromic windows is complicated installation from electricians, which drives up the prices, even though the materials themselves are relatively cheap. Now, the other type of smart window is the thermochromic, and one standout thermochromic material is vanadium dioxide, or VO2. Quoting again, 
VO2 has the ability to shapeshift at higher temperatures, about 68 degrees Celsius or 154 degrees Fahrenheit, increasing its ability to reflect infrared light. This allows visible light to continue to stream in, brightening the room, while lowering the amount of incoming heat, keeping the room cooler. Researchers can mix special substances into VO2 to make it reflect at lower temperatures, but this hinders its reflection of light, making it difficult for the product to transition from the lab to commercial markets, says materials scientist Harlan Biker, who founded the company Pleotent, a maker of dynamic window glass, end quote. Materials scientist Long Yi and her team at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore have been exploring lots of different potential materials, but as Yi readily admits, quote, there's no perfect materials. We can only find the perfect material for certain applications, end quote. And some other thermochromic options include using materials that absorb light instead of reflecting it, so it creates a continuous tint, more reminiscent of the electrochromic windows, or developing windows that scatter light and trap its heat so that that heat and energy can be released when demand and costs are lower at cooler times of the day. Quoting again, They can do this by placing hydroliquid, a combination of water and hydrogel, between two panes of glass. Chains of polymers inside the hydrogel expand when temperatures dip under 30 degrees Celsius, or 86 degrees Fahrenheit, turning the glass transparent. Above this threshold, the chains crumple like paper and entangle with each other to create a tint, scattering near-infrared and visible light. And thanks to the water in the mixture, which can hold high amounts of heat, hydroliquid absorbs the warmth, gradually releasing it over time. This can reduce heating, ventilation, and air conditioning energy needs by 35% compared to double-pane glass, according to Yi's simulation data. End quote. All the above methods and more show a lot of promise, but none of them are quite there yet, and they won't really get there until they make enough of a dent in energy savings for people to want to invest in the high cost, and then over time, hopefully, it brings that cost down. And I said before that smart windows haven't seen a wide rollout, because smart windows of a sort are already in use in some cars, airplanes, boats, and even some office buildings and airports, and similar technology is in use in a range of digital displays. Smart windows have yet to crack into the residential home market, however. But it took air conditioning a long time to get there, too. It was employed in larger buildings for years before people started accepting it into their homes. And it was only in particularly hot places like the southern U.S. where people really got converted. The heat was bad enough down there that people were willing to try something new, even if it was a little out there and a little expensive. Especially as we start hearing about heat waves even more in the news, maybe with names like Heatwave Samson and Heatwave Lisa, more and more people are going to be looking for ways to keep their homes cool without breaking the bank or causing a worse impact on the environment. So fingers crossed that smart window technology rolls out sooner rather than later. Fossil hunters and paleontologists working on the Isle of Wight have identified what may be the largest ever predatory land dinosaur found in Europe. Measuring about 10 meters or 32 feet long, the Spinosaur would have lived about 125 million years ago and has so far been dubbed the White Rock Spinosaurid. The white rocks referring to the geological layer in which the pelvis and tail vertebrae were found on the beach at Compton Bay. Though land-based, Spinosaurs spent a lot of time in and around water, eating plenty of fish during a period of rising sea levels. Some Spinosaurids were even very good swimmers. 
Many Spinosaurid specimens have been found on the Isle of Wight, including the discovery of two new species by this same team last year. Co-author Darren Nash says that the new finding bolsters their belief that the Spinosaurid dinosaurs emerged in Western Europe and diversified there before spreading to other parts of the globe. Now, scientists have not yet found enough of this particular specimen to determine if it represents a whole new species of dinosaur, and therefore it has not yet been bestowed with a formal scientific name. So rather than a new species that is reigning as the largest predatory dinosaur discovered in Europe, it could just be that this individual dino is the largest yet discovered. And while it may be the largest predatory dinosaur discovered in Europe, at 32 feet from snout to tail, it's not actually that huge on a global dinosaur scale. The T-Rex is estimated to have been about 40 feet long, and it doesn't even scratch the top 10 in terms of dinosaur length anymore. Though tyrannosaurs are typically thought to be the heaviest dinosaurs, the longest are usually the sauropods, like the Argentinosaurus and the Patagotitan Maorum, which are neck and neck for the title of largest animal to ever walk the earth. Earth, at roughly 120 to 130 feet long each. Measuring dinosaurs is tough, though, given scientists are usually working with incomplete fossil records, and sauropods especially are rarely found with full tailbones. And techniques are evolving all the time, some with significantly different outcomes and others impacted by new discoveries about various species that have to be taken into account. As paleontologist Christy Curry Rogers told science writer Riley Black in Scientific American when discussing this topic two years ago, quote, with nothing quite like sauropods today, our work on these creatures is akin to studying aliens, end quote. Although, if you ask many dinosaur fans, the size doesn't matter, it's how you use it. And for some, like A.A. A. Dowd from The Ringer, no other dinosaur will ever compare to the T-Rex. Writing today about the bigger, badder dinos that have been paraded out in subsequent Jurassic Park films over the years, Dowd waxes poetic about the core appeal of the OG T-Rex. And while he's talking about the groundbreaking animatronic and its silver screen appeal, I think Dowd's words ring true when it comes to real-life dinosaur discoveries as well, and how the general public has a tendency to compare everything back to our first scaly anti-hero. Quoting Dowd, the T-Rex is still the Coca-Cola classic of multiplex dinosaurs, racing out of the prehistoric past and into every kid's imagination. It's instantly recognizable in silhouette, as iconic as the Jurassic Park logo itself, which of course is just the T-Rex stripped down to its skeletal framework. The Rex is a marvel of design, in both the evolutionary sense and as a special effect, and it has a behavioral identity that its next-gen imitators simply can't boast. Add some extra weight, a longer snout, or the intellect of T-Rex's cross-park rival the Velociraptor, none of it matters. There's just no improving on what Spielberg and his technicians unleashed 30 years ago. However much the sequels have diminished the T-Rex's role and power, they can't deprive us of our memories of that first movie, and the heart-stopping wonders Spielberg worked with a monster built from a combination of fossil records, childhood dreams, ones, zeros, latex, and elbow grease. And however much the Jurassic World movies have tried to substitute a new generation of smarter, larger, and toothier offspring, they all feel like pretenders to the throne, destined to be vanquished by the end credits. You could say that the T-Rex walked so the Gigantosaurus could run, but the T-Rex ran too, and it's that beast's snarling jaws in the rearview mirror that haunt our nightmares still. End quote. 
But as for the white rock Spinosaurid, paleontologists from the University of Southampton will continue scouring the area for more remains and studying the ones they have to further gauge the growth rate and potential age of the specimen. Maybe it'll turn out to be a whole new species unto itself after all, though whether it could dethrone the T-Rex in the popular imagination is a whole other story. While some fast food chains are constantly debuting or rebooting new flavors and menu items, looking at you, Taco Bell, Mexican pizza, others, like Wendy's, tend to keep things a bit more standard. Their famous Frosty, a super thick style milkshake, was part of their original menu when the fast food chain first opened in 1969, and only came in one flavor, chocolate, for 37 years. It wasn't until 2006 that they added a second flavor option for the Frosty, and they went really wild with vanilla. Hilariously, the chocolate Frosty itself is also part vanilla, because founder Dave Thomas thought that all chocolate would be too rich, so the introduction of vanilla was really far from groundbreaking. Now, they did actually get a little bit more creative in 2019 when they briefly released a birthday cake Frosty for the company's 50th anniversary. And now, I guess just because, Wendy's has introduced a strawberry Frosty. Actually, Canadians were able to indulge in Strawberry Frosties all summer long last year when the most requested menu item debuted there. Chief Marketing Officer Carl Laredo told CNN Business that they actually ran out of the Strawberry Frosties halfway through the planned program because people liked them so much. So sounds like it could be worth trying one of these yourself if you are in the U.S. and, unlike me, not cursed with lactose intolerance. It's bad news if you are a diehard fan of the vanilla Frosty, though, because this summer you will only be able to get chocolate or strawberry. That's because Wendy's Frosty machines can apparently only accommodate two flavors at a time. There is something nice about a company that understands its own limits, though, which Laredo hinted at in a press release throwing a bit of shade at McDonald's, saying, quote, While some of our competitors are still trying to get their ice cream machines to work, fans can dip into this new strawberry treat all summer long at Wendy's, end quote. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 